What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season four, episode six, and I want to thank you guys so much for showing love to the last episode, whether you listened yourself, you shared it with a friend, posted it on social media. I don't care how you did it. I just appreciate you guys. And hopefully, I haven't been able to check yet, but hopefully some of you were able to um, answer that question I left for you guys on the last episode regarding, you know, Miley Cyrus. And we're also going to get into more Miley Cyrus related things in this episode because, of course, I have to review her new album, Endless Summer Vacation. And again, of course, I apologize for not getting an episode out to you guys last week. I nearly was about to record, but I really felt like I needed more time to sit with Miley's album. Then a lot of things started coming out that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. And honestly, the episode last week would have been short because there wasn't a whole, whole lot to talk about. So I figured, you know what, I'll try to get this episode out to you guys a little earlier than I have been doing. Hopefully I can get it out to you guys by Tuesday. So that's kind of explains my absence for the week. But without wasting any more time, let's get right into things. So I want to start off with Usher's new single, Glue. Originally, I was going to start off the episode talking about the Oscars, but honestly, I didn't watch and I was... Disappointed but not surprised by Angela Bassett's loss. It was a complete, I think, slap in the face to, I think, the art and skill of acting and putting on a performance. I'm going to talk about a little bit of my thoughts about everything everywhere all at once because I finally did watch it on Oscars night because I have this thing where I don't watch the Oscars, but I kind of like to watch some of the Oscar-nominated films during Uh, like the day that the Oscars air. It's like a little thing that I started a couple of years ago. And I saw Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in that. I've already obviously seen Angela Bassett's in Black Panther 2. And the fact that she won over Angela Bassett was, was, it was an example of everything we've been saying about the Oscars. Like that whole thing, Oscars so white, that was like a a trend, not like a trend, but like a theme that the Oscars couldn't get away from a couple of years ago. It's still relevant. You know, they, they may have you fooled because every now and then they give an award to a black, you know, actor or an actor of color, but don't be fooled when it, when it really comes down to it, they still have those same issues. And for any of those people on the board to see both performances and think that Jamie Lee Curtis had the better one is such bullshit. And 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 we know how they think because days leading up to these award shows, they always like they won't put out the the board members' names, but they always like get their opinion and they explain why they pick the choices they pick. And nine times out of ten, they don't even watch half of these um, films or listen to half of these albums that they're voting on, which is complete bullshit. And that's why they have the issues that they have. So. I didn't watch the Oscars. I saw it play out on Twitter. And the moment that Angela Bassett lost, I was like, you know, I'm done. And I don't really care to to really talk too, too much about the Oscars at this point. Not only because it's been a couple of weeks now, but because it was just total bullshit. But we know who deserved that award deep down, Angela Bassett. But like I was talking about before, before I got a little sidetracked, Usher's new single, Glue. Now, this is a song that he teased I want to say a month ago, and I was like thinking to myself, like he's been in Vegas doing this residency for a couple of years now. You know, he was supposed to put out Confessions 2. He was working on this album with JD, Where Is It? Then an article came out, I think maybe a week or two ago, 
saying that Usher was a part of this new label. And I forgot who, who the head of it was, but he was crafting an album specifically for either this label or this streaming service, one of the two. I can't remember clearly. And I was like, I really hope that Confessions 2 doesn't end up on this. I think it was a streaming platform because I had this thought of, I don't want to buy this streaming service just for Usher's new album. I love Usher Down, but it's not worth it to me. But he put out this new single. It's available on Spotify. So I'm hoping that, you know, he'll release it everywhere. And maybe this streaming service will either get it first and then he'll release it everywhere else like a couple of weeks later or however he wants to do it. But anyway, when he posted the snippet of Glue, and I think the trailer from the music video features uh, Lori Harvey, because of course, and I was like, this sounds really good. Like this sounds like what I kind of was expecting from Usher. The sounds that I feel like, because, you know, I think the beauty of where R&B is right now is that it's kind of back to every artist doing their own thing. I've said this time and time again when I had this conversation about the women kind of running R&B right now, which I always kind of feel like women kind of ran R&B. But I think the men put up a better fight back then. But I feel like the place where R&B is is that, you know, each artist has their own thing. So if you don't like Summer Walker's music, you know, maybe SZA's more your thing, or maybe Ella's more your thing, maybe Ari Lennox's, L Lucky Day, like the list goes on and on. And when Lucky Day, you know, really first broke out and he put out those EPs, he caught my attention because he reminded me so much of Usher. His tone, his falsetto, the music he was making sounded like something Usher would be making today. And when Usher was putting out some of his singles, some good, some I felt like were a miss, I was like, well, Usher, if Usher sat and worked with like DeMile again, because I'm pretty sure they've worked together in the past, DeMile has been around a long time. He's got songs with Justin Bieber like when he was first starting out. So I'm sure he and Usher have some songs together. I'm like, you know, if he works with like Lucky Day, DeMile, Victoria Monet, like this kind of R&B that they do, which is like, a modern take of like a 70s style soul. And I was like, that really would suit Usher's voice. And you know, something more soulful, something more, a little more jazzy, something that, the something where the production is more lively and doesn't sound computerized, it sounds live, actual, actual instruments, you know, Usher's voice would complement things like that. And so when I heard Glue, it kind of gave me that feeling. Not so much like really 70s, but like the production was a little livelier. It was a little bit more soulful, more smoky. And Glue, what I love about it is it allows one of Usher's best characteristics as an artist to shine, which is his falsetto. And I feel like he was really, he was, he sounded like he was passionate again. Like he was excited to be making music. It didn't just sound like, oh, I'm putting out a song for the hell of it, or, you know, I'm putting out a song that fits with the trend or whatever. It sounded like he really enjoyed making the song just based off of how he's singing on the record. Very passionate. Again, like that's the most I've ever heard him use his falsetto on a record in a long time. Like I said, his falsetto was absolutely gorgeous. And Glue really highlights that. And there's this one part, I don't know if it's technically the bridge, he does this like this this scale. I think that's the proper term. He he uses this um, scale and he hits this like crazy high note. And I I remember the first time I heard this song, like I, I kind of pulled my earphones off and I was like, Good lord! I have not heard Usher sing this passionately in a long time. 
at, at this point, I don't know where these songs are going. He has Bad Habits, which is probably one of my favorite singles he's released so far. Now he's put out Glue. He had a song with Ella and I think 2018, 2019 that ended up not going anywhere um, that I assumed was going to be for Confessions. And I don't know now where any of these songs are going. I'm assuming those songs are not going to end up on this album. They're just going to end up being a Lucy. I don't know if Glue's... It's a standalone single just to, you know, have something new and fresh to perform. But regardless of anything else, Usher is on tour technically. He's got a residency. And I think giving your fans a new album, like, yes, he's Usher. His discography speaks for himself. People are going to go to that residency regardless of a new album because I know I would. But I kind of think it's a nice little treat. Like, it, it gets your fans even more excited to come to these shows that you've been doing for close to two years now. So it really would be nice for him to put out an album. His last album came out in, I don't even know when, 2018, I think. And I wasn't a fan of it. It wasn't even really an album. It was more of like an EP or a project. And he was doing like, he was trying to do the trap R&B shit. And it just doesn't, it didn't work for him. And I was like, I really need Usher to go back to the drawing board. So now that R&B is where it is right now, it's a perfect time for one of the, I think, kings of R&B. For me, he's my personal king. I grew up on Usher, like, that's just my opinion. And I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody would think I was bugging. But I think it's only right for the king of R&B to take advantage of this incredible space that R&B is in today and really show, you know, really show that he's the OG and be like, look, this is why I'm the king. Like, this, this may be a new generation, this may be a, a new sound for R&B, but I'm going to show you why I have the crown. So I really do hope that something more comes out of this single and, you know, that an album materializes. I do hope we still get confessions, too. Who knows at this point? I mean, in the process of them making this album, JD went off and, you know, co-produced Division's latest album, which was really good. So who knows? I know I'll just be tapped in regardless, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm... I'm glad that Usher is, you know, taking advantage and trying new things because it's paying off. I really like this new song. So moving on from Usher's new single, Glue, I want to finally get into my album review of Endless Summer Vacation by Miley Cyrus. So this album sees Miley fully embracing pop music on her own terms. She has an eclectic discography, and this album sees her blending some of those genres she's dipped her feet into in the past. For example, Thousand Miles puts her back into her country roots. It's a soft country ballad featuring Brandi Carlisle and is one of the two songs on the album that takes me back to her Hannah Montana days, but much more mature. She also has a song called Wonder Woman on this album, and it really does remind me of a more like mature version of The Climb for some reason. And I feel like it was intentional because she went back to Disney, like I said in the last episode, she gave like a backyard sessions. She was celebrating the 14th year anniversary of the climb. And it's just one of those songs for Miley. And not every artist has them, but one of those motivational songs that just, they're timeless. You play them at graduations, you play them, you know, big and important events in your life. Like that song is always like gonna get her through the door of many places. Like even people who typically aren't a Miley Cyrus fan may love that song because it just feels so good. It's uplifting. And I feel like it was an intention it was intentional of of her putting Wonder Woman on this album and trying to maybe get that feeling back. So those are like the two songs that remind me of her like Hannah Montana, like, you know, like early Disney days. 
One of my favorite parts about her as an artist is her tone. It's absolutely gorgeous, and she knows how to pick production that highlights it for the most part. Thousand Miles is one of those songs. Endless Summer Vacation is split into two parts, the AM side and the PM side. The AM side is filled with light and slower paced production. This is the part of the album where she reflects on a past love, a past relationship, where it went wrong, and any regrets that she may have had. She carries the same energy she had on plastic hearts when it comes down to like brutal honesty and no desire to water herself down. Now what makes Plastic Hearts, I think a better album than Endless Summer Vacation is that Miley really like went outside of the box and pushed the envelope. I don't think anybody was expecting her to do like a pop, you know, punk album like that. Once we got the album, we realized, man, this really suits her and it suits her voice and you know, it, it makes perfect sense. But nobody was expecting it at the time because the album before that, I, I, and I wasn't really tapped into Mother Daughter because at that point I kind of had fell off listening to her music. So I can't really describe what the sound of was, but I can tell you that I wasn't expecting her to go from that to, you know, this. And I think what Endless Summer Vacation lacked, yes, it had that brutal honesty of, you know, I'm not trying to be this, this tamer woman that, you know, I tried to force myself to be in my marriage. It's got that brutal honesty, but it, it lacks that punch. You know, Endless Summer Vacation is tamer than Plastic Hearts for sure. The tracks on this album overall are well-written. They're relatable, honest, and intentional. She has lines like, quote, I'm sorry that you're jaded. I could have taken you places. You're lonely now and I hate it. On her song, Jaded, one of my favorite songs on the album. And also, quote, I got some baggage. Let's do some damage. I am not made for no horsey and carriage. You know I'm savage, but you're looking past it. And in these songs, they separately tell their own story, but they connect really well. Because in Jaded, she's talking about, you know, I was in this relationship, it, it really didn't work, and I left him, and now they're kind of bitter, they're alone, all of the, I, I brought so many great things into this marriage and tried to make you a better person, you didn't appreciate it, I left, and now you are where you are. And then you move on to those lines that I just talked about and I forgot what song they came from. Um, maybe You, Maybe You is the song, where she's saying, you know, I have a whole lot of baggage. I imagine when you go through a hard divorce and a hard marriage, it kind of puts a bad taste in your mouth. She's admitted time and time before that she's never gonna get married again. So dating after a divorce like that, I'm sure is extremely hard. You have, you know, a, a, maybe a chip on your shoulder. You have a lot of baggage. You're trying to date somebody else who now has to kind of sift through that baggage and, and, and you're trying to heal. And I like that the AM side really is focused on that part of her life because it's honest and it's relatable to some people, not me. I've never been married. But even though I've never been married and I can't relate, it is such a, a breath of fresh air when people are just not, oh, I've been through this and now I'm healed and now I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to love again and I'm ready to do this. You know, healing, I feel like, is a journey you kind of go on for the rest of your life and you make an effort to do. And on this AM side, it really sounds like that of, you know, I, I left that marriage and I'm trying my hardest to be a better person. I'm trying my hardest to find love again, but I also have to be honest about all these other things. So I think one of the, the best parts about this album is just it's refreshing how honest she is, and, and that's how I felt about Plastic Hearts too. The PM side is more of the wild Miley that we've come to love. It's filled with more lively production. 
And this is also where the pop production really shines. This is when it really becomes a dance pop album. By the time we get to Handstand, she's forgetting her past relationship woes and is having more fun. At least for the most part. Handstand is probably the only song I really hate on this album. It's it's more of a, a highly sexual record, which isn't the problem. The beat, I, I cannot stand it. Her her cadence and her vocal choices on this song are they grate on my nerves. That's the only way I can explain it without you listening to the song. It's just a very odd song. It's a very odd choice, but I understand because, you know, this album is split into two parts and Handstand kind of is that song that separates the two sides, I guess. I, I, I feel like she could have done that a little better, but I see where she was going. And also when she does touch on her relationship issues on the PM side, like on Muddy Feet, she's not really putting up with the bullshit anymore. It was kind of like on the other side, it, on the first side of the album, it's, you know, I'm kind of, you know, acknowledging what you did wrong, but it's more about her and self-reflecting. But when you get to the PM side, it's, oh, you are a piece of shit. You did this. I'm done with you. I, I'm moving on with my life. I'm, I'm choosing to have fun and, and you know, X, Y, Z. Muddy Feet, also one of my favorite songs on this album, is a brash and brutal breakup song where she compares her ex to a dog <laughs> who's tracking mud all over the place, AKA his bullshit. And what I loved about this song is the metaphors. You know, so she's, like I said, she's comparing her ex to a dog who's tracking mud all over the place. And on the flip side, it means, you know, her ex who was really coming into her peace and disrupting it and with his lies and his bullshit and whatever. And now she, on the song she goes, I'm gonna have to do something about it you know, like kind of like she's, you know, she's kicking him out of her life. She's kicking the dog out of her home for disrupting it and causing a mess. And like I said, these songs on this album are very well written and very intentional. And I think that's why Flowers picked up so much attention and hype because she wasn't outright saying her ex-husband's name. She wasn't, you know, really giving you a whole, whole lot of details, but it was more subtle things where fans could kind of puzzle it together. And I think that's what Taylor Swift fans love about Taylor's music is that, you know, she has this very poetic way of writing her songs and there are all these, you know, metaphors and double meanings and double entendres and tricks that she likes to use. And it's fun for fans to kind of puzzle and piece together and break down. And I feel like Miley has been doing that a lot more lately, maybe not on the same scale as Taylor Swift, because Taylor Swift is like, who some of the words that she uses and like, it's sometimes it's like she is writing like she's Shakespeare, you know? Um, but for Miley Cyrus, it's songs like Muddy Feet and even Flowers where it's like, she's being intentional of, of what she's saying. She's just not being, you know, outright saying, this song is about my ex-husband, this is what I mean. You know, so that's also what makes I think this is also what makes rap music fun too. Like when you have a really good uh, lyricist that just puts words together so well and you know, it makes you wanna sit and listen to the album front to back and try to puzzle and, and piece together things. Like, you know, that's why Kendrick and J. Cole fans are the way they are. They're, they're extra about it, but that's why they are the way they are. So that was one of my favorite parts about Muddy Feet for sure. It is a solid pop song. Sia's vocals can be heard towards the end, which a lot of people, because I think she's featured on the song, and a lot of people are like, this wasn't necessary. All, all she did was probably co-write the song and, and add a couple of vocals. Honestly, her part in this was as useless as Beyonce's part in that DJ Khaled song, where he credited her as harmonies from the hive. And I'm like, really, Khaled, really? But I think overall, Muddy Feet is a really solid pop record. 
I love when Mike Will and Miley Cyrus get together. They're an incredible duo. Violet Chemistry to me is the all time best track on this album. Again, co-produced by Mike Will Made It. The production is beautifully layered with pop, electronic, and dance components. You know, I think, you know, part of the reason they have such incredible chemistry is that he just gets her as an artist, no matter what kind of sound she finds in herself going in on an album, he's always kind of able to craft something that makes sense for her. And also he's just a diverse producer, like, you know, back to what I was talking about with um, Hip Boy when he was kind of talking about his peers and what they do. You know, I think Mike Will is also a diverse producer. You can sometimes tell when he's producing a track and sometimes you can't. And Violet Chemistry is one of those beats where he's really just outside of the box. It, it really is an incredible song. I do hope that um, this is the next single from the album. Oh yeah, of course I have to talk about how gorgeous her tone is on this track too. Like, I think that's something we all highlight for Miley. I'm gonna keep saying it over and over again. She really does have a beautiful voice. Um, but again, yeah, I hope this is the next single from the album because I think it'll end up being one of the best pop songs of the year. All in all, I think the AM side is more enjoyable than the PM side, surprisingly, because it is so slow. And when she first announced the, the theme of this album, I'm like, well, I'm probably going to like the, the dance side of it because it's more up, you know, it's more upbeat, it's more lively, it's fun. But I really did think the songs on the AM side overall were a lot better. If you are patient enough, Endless Summer Vacation is an album that gets better with each listen. On her next album though, I do wanna see her be more bold like she was on Plastic Hearts and not play it so safe. The rating that I give this album is three out of five stars. My top tracks are Jaded, Rose Colored Lenses, Violet Chemistry, Muddy Feet, and Island. So moving on from music and Miley Cyrus completely and on to You Season 4 Part 2. Wow. Now, this is a huge difference on what I said about the first part. Because honestly, when I talked about the first part, I think I spent maybe five minutes, maybe even less on it. Because I was so unsatisfied with the first part of the show. Because Season 3 packed such a punch. I was like, this falls flat and also how do you continue to raise the stakes because I feel like season three really could have you know been the series finale that's how good it was and it posed the question how can Joe keep getting away with this how can he keep reinventing and changing his life to to run away from his his demons and his the crimes that he's committing and I almost want to say that breaking up and I know Netflix has this theme I really think it started with um Stranger Things. And I saw a lot of people complain about them breaking that up too. That there was it was a mistake to break up this season. I think that the punch that part two packed made you look back at the first part, and I said this even before I started watching part two, that the first part felt like filler. And you break up this season like this, I almost didn't want to go back and watch part two because I was so unsatisfied with part one. I'm glad I watched it and I'm glad I watched it before it got spoiled because those plot twists and we're going to get into them. Don't worry. But part two packed a much bigger punch and I feel like more than half of the first part of season four really could have been cut and trimmed and it would have made for a much better season that they could have just put out all at once like they usually do. Hopefully they don't do the same thing with season five. I'm pretty sure it got renewed for season five. But let's get into part two. Now, of course, spoiler alert, because I am gonna be talking about what happens. So I already talked and gave a little bit of a background, I think, on part one. 
But pretty much for those of you who didn't get to that episode, missed it or, or whatever, a brief background for part one is that Joe, after killing his wife, Love, moves to London to again try to get away from his bullshit and he meets this this writer, this I think he's British, his name is Reese. And they talk one night and end up later in the season forming this really twisted and demented relationship. You know, Joe ends up being the one to get stalked, you know, and you know, Reese is leaving all killing all of these people and framing Joe for it unless he does his bidding for him. And this this whole thing. Then you get to part two and you realize that Joe essentially has a mental breakdown and his mind just fractures. And who he thinks is Reese killing all these people and framing him is actually him. And it's a split personality. Now, this to me is how you raise the fucking stakes. Because again, the question is, how can Joe keep going on and reinventing himself and running from his demons before the consequences catch up to him. And I feel like this is the beginning of the end, though it doesn't feel like it, because his mind finally fractures and forces him to accept who he is, which is not a good person. You know, Joe has this hero complex. He's, you know, killing all of these people and trying to convince himself that it can't be helped. You know, he's trying to be a good man and then, situ you know, situations... His environment forced him to go back to his ways. To me, there was no redemption for Joe ever. And it drives me crazy that so many people were like, I was rooting for you, Joe, and I was believing you were a good man. Why do you think a man who has spent the entire series killing several people, he's a serial killer people, why do you think he's capable of redemption or he's deserving of it? And why I kicked myself because that plot twist got me. I really didn't believe Joe was killing those people just because we saw a physical person that he, cause he would be having conversations with Reese and it looked real. It looked like there was, it was actually another person he was talking to fighting with and who was actually killing these people because when these crimes would happen, Joe seemingly would be nowhere near it. He would kind of be there in the aftermath. And I'm kicking myself because one thing I always consistently said about Joe is that he was an unreliable narrator. You cannot take anything that Joe says seriously. You cannot believe him. You can't trust him for shit. So why I actively believe that he let Marianne go, which is so out of his nature, by the way, when he's so obsessed and caught up with someone, when they reject him, there's no way he just lets her go. I'm a good man. She has a daughter. I let her go back and blah, blah right? I'm kicking myself because I know this. I know that Joe was unreliable and I still fell for this shit. And I also like the fact that the writer spent so much time trying to convince the audience that Joe felt like he was redeeming himself and, and moving on to be a better person only to be like, actually, this is still the same man he always was. He was just better at playing the good guy part because anybody who does what he did to love and love is not an angel. She is as much of the villain as he is. But anybody who does that to, to, and gives up their child and starts a whole new life to get away from, you know, the heinous acts that they've committed says everything I need to know. Because while people were so caught up on Joe trying to redeem himself, they're forgetting that in between these moments, he was still killing people. In season three, when he was falling in love with Marianne, what does he do? 
he kills her piece of shit ex. Now the guy was a piece of shit. I didn't cry when he got killed, but it's not up to Joe to make those decisions. It's really not. And yes, it worked out for Marianne in the end. She got to be with her daughter, but he still killed somebody. And probably if Mary, if Love hadn't warned Marianne and she actually decided, you know what, let's run away together, let's be together, he would have kept killing. Because the moment she got close to somebody else, male or female, he doesn't care. His insecurities, his issues would have started bubbling up. And the only way he would have been able to, to handle the situation is killing his way out of it. So Joe has never really fully redeemed himself. So seeing so many people on Twitter go, oh my God, I was rooting for him. I can't believe it. I'm like, let's be real people. Let's be real. So that's the part I was kicking myself about, seriously. And I know in the first part, I said that Kate was his most bland love interest ever. And I still believe she's bland. I still believe there's not really a whole lot of chemistry there. But in a lot of ways, she is much more evil and sinister than love was. Because love was his match. She was a serial killer herself. She was obsessive just like Joe. She was willing to kill anybody in her way when it came to Joe. And so he truly met his match with love in that way. Kate is more sinister because not only was she at fault for causing several kids to get cancer and die. It was, uh, I think her father had this company, this this medical company, and they were making like, I don't think it was vaccines, but it was some kind of medicine that they knew was like, they knew it was capable of killing people and they gave it to them anyway. And so Kate spent her whole life, you know, trying to be a good person and getting away from that tragedy and even telling other people that it was her father's fault before finally coming clean and saying, actually, it was me. I did these things. And Joe and Kate are kind of like, they're parallel to each other because Joe spent the past couple of seasons trying to convince himself that he was a good guy and he was forced to do these things. And Kate is doing the same. You know, my father really, you know, forced me to be in this life and it's his fault. You know, she really wasn't taking accountability for her own actions until the end. And so now, you know, when the season, the season, look, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So that to me makes Kate more sinister, right? She's got all this money, you know, she has all the power in the world. Her father had all the power in the world to make anything go away. So Joe finally meets, I think I'm on the right page. Joe finally meets her father who actually knows his real name. So he's been going by Jonathan his whole time in London. And when he meets the father, he greets him by his actual name. And then it turns out that Reese and Kate's father are both running for, I think, governor. And they hate each other. And Reese has convinced Joe that he needs to kill Kate's father. And Kate's father has convinced Joe that he has to kill Reese. Then he meets up with Reese later. He, you know, tells Joe that he has Marianne tied up and locked somewhere, and if he doesn't kill Kate's father, he's gonna kill Marianne, and blah, 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 blah. So Joe spends an episode, she, he, he spends the back half of an episode trying to find Marianne, and then Marianne gets her whole episode, gets a whole episode to herself in her point of view, which I think is the first time that you has done this. And you find out, Joe, how unreliable Joe is as a narrator, because Joe in the first part tells the audience that, you know, he lets Marianne go, she gets on the train, goes back to her daughter. But Marianne's point of view, that is not what happened at all. 
He follows her to the train station. He steals her necklace. He drops something in her drink. She drinks it. You know, it knocks her unconscious. She wakes up, tied up to a chair in a, in a place in one of Joe's apartments. And you start to have this sinking feeling. Like the color grading, I will say, in this entire season was dark. But it gets so much cooler as the episodes go on. It's so sinister. When you get to her episode, it's so dark and so cold. You have a chill and you realize, oh, something, something is wrong. And Joe has always been a creepy guy. But this is his scariest. Like... This is a Joe that has this split personality that is all evil. It has none of the morals and ethics that Joe tries to have. And there's this one scene, and they're saying that his mind fractured after he hit his head, I believe. And there's this one scene where he puts her in the cage, and she's looking at him, and she's pleading for him, like, I know you're in there somewhere, because she can tell something is off, that he's not the same guy that he was when they had originally met. And there's this scene where she's pleading for him. Joe, Joe, like, come out. I know you're in there. And he looks at her, and there's no life in his eyes. Like, Penn Badgley does this role too good. If I saw him on the street, I would want to hightail it in the other direction. He is so good. Too good. He looks at her. There's no life in his eyes. Like, it's scary. And he looks at her, and he goes, and for me, this is one of those needle drops. I'm not Joe. And it's this, it's that moment where I feel like the audience collectively was like, oh shit, this is completely new territory. And then you start to, you know, piece it together. You know, he finds out he, he only met Reese that one night in the season premiere of this current season. He met him in part one. But all those other moments he fabricated. When they met at the bar, he was talking to himself. I don't know how the bartender wasn't freaked out. When he... When Reese met him at Joe's apartment and they were arguing, Joe, I guess, was recording it as proof for the police. Joe realizes that it's just him. He's, he's talking to himself. And while Joe was convincing the audience that Reese was stalking him, he was actually stalking Reese. And the box that Joe loves to do every time he gets obsessed with someone comes out. And Joe starts to realize, oh shit, like, I never met this man. I've embodied a twisted version of him. He was obsessed with this book and it all starts when his student, Nadia, who comes back to play, gave him this book and said, hey, you know, I think you'd really like this guy because, you know, Joe becomes a teacher in college teaching, I think, literature. And his student comes up to him and says, hey, I think you'll really like this book. Here you go. And from there, he forms an obsession. He's, he watches all the guys' interviews. Again, his split personality takes on his persona. And it comes to a head too before we get to the Marianne episode where he decides that he's going to take Kate's father's advice and kill him because he also wants to know where Marianne is. So he follows him to where he's hiding out in and knocks him out, ties him up, and he's, you know, he's demanding, where's Marianne, where's Marianne? And Reese is like, I, you have me confused with someone else. I don't know who you are. I don't know who Marianne is. And you're sitting there confused because you're like, what do you mean you don't know? Like, you know, you just told him you had him. Like, why are you playing around? And as the scene continues, you get this realization of, I don't think this guy really, I think this guy's telling the truth. I think he doesn't know anything. And at that point, it's too late. Joe kills him. And then that's when Reese or the figment, 
or his split personality, the figment of his imagination pops back out. And for a split moment, you're like, well, does he have a twin? And we just didn't know. And then that's when it's all kind of revealed, like, oh, there's no twin. And Reese had no idea who Joe was. Joe, his mind is, is gone. Like, it, it fractured. And so one of the best parts of the season in the series was that, but also how smart Marianne was and that she was the one who ends up getting away. You know, it all usually ends the same for Joe. He ends up killing these women. And I was pleading, I was like, you know, Marianne's got a daughter. I really love her character. Like, you know, she, she, we thought she got away. She got away a couple of times. Please let her really fully get away this time. And so Joe thinks that she died, that she kills herself because, you know, um, her and Nadia set up this plan and we don't know this until after where the person who I think was watching her daughter sends her a text message saying, you know, where are you? You know, um, your the father of your child's family is going to take custody of her because you have been missing for what I would say probably months at this point with no word and blah, 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 blah. And she plays this trick on Joe because she knows that she knew that if he thought that he ruined her life, that he would, I think, try to let her go. Like he, he has to feel like the savior. And if he feels like he fucked up her life as Joe, not the split personality, because the split personality doesn't care, that he would let her go. She knew that if she could appeal to Joe, he would let her go. And she's not wrong. And so they set up this plan where she um, takes, I think, this drug that kind of temporary, temporarily or like barely gives her a pulse. It either stops it temporarily or barely gave her a pulse. Joe comes back, realizes that she killed herself. And I guess to show remorse, he takes her out of the cage and leaves her like on the bench somewhere and runs off. You find out that her and Nadia set this plan up. She gives her like the antidote. She, you know, her heart, you know, really starts again and she wakes up and she rushes back home to her daughter and she escapes. And I'm telling you, I was on the edge of my seat this whole episode because I really thought Marianne killed herself. Truly, truly did. And I was like, no, I really wanted her to, I wanted one time for the woman to get away. And I'm so happy that they gave that moment to the audience because it felt like a win because the rest of the finale felt like a loss. So it really feels like the, the walls are closing in on Joe. His student, Nadia, is on to him. She's investigating him. She's finding all of these clues about his past. And, you know, he's not who he says he is. You know, his wife died and he was supposed to be dead and yet he escaped. So obviously that means he had something to do with her death. So it's Nadia and her boyfriend. And it comes to a head. She breaks into his house. And at the same time that this is going on, Joe had tried to kill himself. After Marianne had faked her suicide, he felt like, you know, love was right because then he started, like he really had a mental breakdown. He was like seeing all the different women he killed and wronged and they're pretty much telling him the same thing. Like you're, you're the problem. This keeps hap this isn't just happening to you. You're causing these things to happen because again, Joe was trying to convince himself in the audience, I'm a better guy. I'm being forced to do these things. I don't really want to do them, blah, 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 blah. And they're telling him like, you have to accept the fact that this is you. His mind fractured so bad, he wanted someone to take on 
the worst and darkest parts of him so that he could be like, this is you. I'm not you. I've done some horrible things, but you're terrible. Like I would never, almost like to make himself feel better for the things he had done in the past. And so now he he's having this moment where, you know, love and Gwen, and I'm so glad they brought her back. It's been forever, girl. They brought all these people back to be like, no, this is who you are. You're causing these things. You're a killer. You're the problem. And he gets to a point where he's like, well, in order to fix this problem, I have to take myself out of the equation. So he attempts to kill himself. It doesn't work. He's rescued. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I really, I'm sorry. I really wanted him to die because they're not wrong. He is the problem and it's not going to get better. He's going to constantly keep doing this until he gets caught or ends up dead. And I'm like, well, realistically, we know it's coming back for season five. So how is it going to come back unless they like, they, they give a new voice to a, a, a new character? I'm like, I can't see them doing that. So it ends up that he survives um, and, and, oh yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm all over the place. So before he kills himself too, I, I think because I was so focused on the Marianne episode, he decides that he's going to kill Kate's father because at this point he's accepted. I'm a terrible person. I've done these things. It's not Reese. It's me. And he decides that he wants to kill her father because her father pretty much blackmailed her into coming back to working for him. She doesn't want to, but he's saying, all of the success that you think you've had on your own, I had a hand in doing. Nothing has been anything that you earned on your own. I have helped you every step of the way, even when you didn't realize. And so she was going to run off and start her new life and try to get out of her father's clutches. And Joe decides that he's going to kill the father, which he does. And by doing so, I guess in his will, he left his company and all of his money to Kate. So... After Joe attempts to kill himself and fails, he's in the hospital, Kate comes to visit him, and that's when Joe is honest with her. I've killed people in the past. And even though he doesn't admit to killing her father, it's unspoken, like she knows, because her she just found out her father died, Joe attempts to kill himself. She's a smart girl, I think she pieces it together. And the moment that her sinisterness really peeks his head is that she says, well, I won't ask you any deeper questions than you want to give me about your past. Let's just make each other better people. In that moment, she decides to do what love does and accept him for who he is and not care. But what makes her worse than love is that, again, she has the power and the money to make everything go away. When the series, I mean, not when the series, when the season ends, you find out that she uses her power, money, and influence to completely change the narrative surrounding Joe. He no longer has to go by Jonathan. He can go by Joe again. And they craft the story of, you know, love was deeply troubled and she was sick. And, you know, the marriage was extremely abusive. I had to do what I had to do to escape from it. And you would think, now you can live your life as Joe. Does that mean you're going to come back for your son? What, what does that mean? Because you left your son to two strangers who you, you really don't know. They were they seemed like good men, but you don't really know them. So now what? Now they know that you've resurfaced as Joe. You're not really dead. So does this mean that other characters from the past can come into the next season? And I'm going to get into my theories at the end. So before, so in that episode, in the finale, they kind of bounce back between the future and the past. So after that, what they, that anti-hero needle drop, which is the perfect song to <laughs> describe Joe, 
they reveal again that Nadia had broken into his house, like she had found all these clues. And just as she's exiting, she finds that her boyfriend has been murdered and she bumps into Joe and she sick, she quickly realizes I'm not getting out of this. And so what he ends up doing is framing her for the boyfriend's murder and he gets away with everything. He frames her for the boyfriend's murder. What else does he frame her for? There's a couple of things he, he placed in her wake, but it was the most heartbreaking ending because she was so close to exposing him. And if she had gotten there just a little bit quicker, the outcome may have been different. But now he's with the woman with all this power and influence. He's now untouchable. And that's what makes Joe even scarier than he's ever been. And also because now at this point, he's accepted and embraced that he's a killer. In one of his final monologues in the season, he says, you know, I also kill, but that's just a fun little pastime. And I feel like he and Kate are now going to be this extremely dangerous duo. She's got the power and influence and he's willing to kill. So if something doesn't go her way, is he going to kill them for her? Probably yes. And he's with the woman who knows exactly who he is, embraces him, and loves him anyway, and is going to help him clean up his mess no matter what. And you get the sinking feeling like, we were so close to seeing Joe lose, and he wins yet again. But I do believe, at the same time, like I mentioned in the beginning, this is the beginning of the end for Joe. Because now he's living as Joe Goldberg again. Which means the people who know who he really is, who he screwed over, it gives them the opportunity to come back. So this is my theory. We've already started to see a couple of old faces by the end of season four. We saw Gwen come back. We saw Love. There was one other person that came back. And there are a lot of people he screwed over that got away. You know, Jenna Ortega's character was apparently supposed to make an appearance in the season, but couldn't because of her filming schedule for Wednesday. Now for next season, they may be able to get her back. She has enough motive to want to get revenge and she's one of the ones that got away because he killed her sister Delilah in season two. Or love killed her, but Joe played a part. She's got motive for revenge. Dr. Nikki, who was framed for Guinevere Beck's death, who's sitting in prison, played by John Stamos, he's got motive for revenge. Marianne, who escaped, who, who may want to just remain hidden because, look, it took everything in me. I, I barely survived escaping. I'm deathly afraid of this man. He seems to get away with everything. They show her at the end reading this article of this fabricated, you know, story that they've concocted for why he had to run off and abandon his old life. But she knows the truth. Is she going to be willing to step up and get revenge as well? Or is she just going to be like, you know what? I escaped. He thinks I'm dead. Let him, to let him continue thinking I'm dead. And I wouldn't blame her. I really wouldn't. I think I'd do the same. I'm with my daughter. I escaped. He thinks I'm dead, which means I'm not going to be on his radar at all. I think he moved to New York with Kate at this point. I'm just going to let it go. But there are a lot of people who have the opportunity to get revenge. So I think season five, hopefully, because I know the actor Penn Badgley, he hates this guy. He, I think he loves playing the character, but... What I respect about him is, in his, he's not one of those actors that tries to make excuses. No, he's like Joe is a terrible human being. You should not be voting, rooting for him. When is he gonna? When is he going to face consequences? When is it gonna come crashing down? And I think the writers have to strongly consider that season five is the time to really start setting those seeds. Because I literally, when watching the show, when watching this finale, I'm like, no, I screamed no because I'm like, I cannot believe this guy is getting away with this shit again. 
But again, it's unrealistic for him to keep getting away with it. Even the most powerful people in the world, eventually they crumble. We see it in real time, all the time. And I think season five is that opportunity to let these old players come out again and team up together because Joe is going to be a hard man to take down. He was hard before. He's going to be even harder now. So I think that's my theory. We're going to see a lot of old faces come back and be like, you know what? Joe, you know, fabricating this story of his life, it's not going to be easy because there are people who know who he truly is. So all in all, part two extremely blew part one out of the water. Again, I really felt like they didn't need to break the, the season in half. They could have taken some stuff out and put it together all at once. I really hope that's what they do for season five. But this was a batshit crazy season. And again, I have the same questions that I had at the end of season three. How are we going to raise the stakes for season five? And I think that's the only way. So those are my thoughts and my theories and my commentary on part two of season four of You. Please let me know what you thought about uh, this part because my jaw was on the floor. I, I'd assume at this point that most people who watch the show have already pretty much finished it. So I'm going to leave a little question for my Spotify listeners at the end of this episode that you guys can vote on when you go into the app because I'm curious on what you thought of this season. So moving on from you and into some movie reviews, I want to start off with Scream 6. Now, those of you who follow me on social media know I've been in my Scream era for the past month or two. It started with me. I, I always loved slashers. I loved the Scream series they did on MTV. But I had only really seen the first Scream movie. And I had only seen it in parts because every time I would try to watch it on like cable, I'd always catch it at the end or in the middle, never from the beginning. So I already kind of knew what happened in the first Scream but I watched it again anyway, and then I proceeded to watch the rest of the Scream films and fell in love with it. I always respected Scream as a slasher because I feel like they, Wes Craven really revitalized like horror, you know? And I always compared other slashers that I would see to Scream, how could you not? And so I finally sat and watched all of the movies and of course fell in love with most of them, not all of them. And when Scream 6 was getting closer to coming out, I said, okay, I really have to sit down and watch Scream 5 so I could watch Scream 6. Unfortunately, who won, spoiler alert, I might spoil some stuff. Um, one of the killers in Scream 6 was revealed. I was pissed. I was like, this movie hasn't even been out for two days and you guys are already revealing who the killer is. That's the thing I hate about social media, specifically Twitter. So I was like, I have to hurry up and see Scream 6. So I planned this whole day of watching movies. And I just wanted to share my thoughts on some of them. If you follow me on Letterboxd, you got like a small version of this. So Scream 6 is a love letter to Scream 2. And this is how it gives the franchise new life. This one is a reminder of why we fell in love with Scream and Slashers in the first place. There are a lot of comparisons, direct comparisons and parallels to Scream 2. And one of the reasons I love this franchise is that it plays right into the horror tropes. It's a bunch of kids that love horror movies that make offhanded one-liners about typical tropes and cliches that happen, and then they actually happen in the film. Like there's this one part in Scream 6 where they're like breaking down the rules of a horror of how these movies work. And it's something that they always do. 
in these films and everything that they say is going to happen in the film ends up happening so they're playing right into it and and that's what i love it's like it doesn't take itself too seriously it's telling you what it's going to do and it might catch you off guard with a few mo uh, in a few like moments in the movie but you pretty much know what's going to happen and one of the things that one of the characters highlights is the fact that scream 6 the current movie they were in was a direct parallel to the second scream movie and it was Scream 2 is one of the better Scream movies, in my opinion, and it makes absolute sense that Scream 6 tried to capture that. Because some of when... There was... Scream 5 was good. It was a lot better than Scream 4. God, Scream 4 was the worst. But some of what Scream 5 lacked, Scream 6 had. And I feel like part of the reason it was so good was that it did parallel the second film in the franchise. And this was the first Scream movie where they took you out of Woods burrow and i feel like it could have went wrong in a lot of ways but instead it made the movie feel bigger and more dangerous and i saw someone say that they wished that they had utilized the setting more and i guess in some ways they could have but i liked i ended up liking the way they did it because yes you're in new york city so it's a much bigger city there's a lot of different opportunities that the killer can use that maybe they they couldn't really take advantage of in a place as small as Woodsboro, but I think that they kept enough of, what's the word? Well, pretty much what Scream 6 does so well is that it revisits every past killer. This killer is literally using the same masks as the other killers. I think they're using some of the same like tactics that the old killers were using, and that's kind of what helped tie in that Woodsboro feeling because they are directly following in the other killer's footsteps. So yes, you're in New York City, but you still kind of have that feeling, if that makes sense. And I also love that too. It didn't feel cheap. Like, oh, you're just copycatting the killers. It made it feel more of like a whodunit. That's what Scream, that's what Scream is supposed to be. Like a murder mystery. Who is, who's killing these people? And I feel like at certain, certain, editions of this movie in the past kind of got away from that but scream six really brings it home of this is a classic whodunit and you and you have a moment even though one of the killers got spoiled for me i still ended up being surprised in the end um because there were a lot of nice healthy twists and turns that kind of kept it kept the energy going like i never felt like this movie slowed down in any way but it also kept you on the edge of your seat because who you think is the killer ends up not being and I feel like the motive for these sets of killers was a lot stronger than some of the past ghost face reveals. There are some ghost face reveals where I'm like, this is like a bottom tier ghost face. Like in Scream 3, her brother, who was such a whiny little bitch, like that to me fell flat. It could have been a lot better. Like the idea that Sydney had a brother, I love that part of it. The actual character and the actual ghost face, not so much. And another thing, another way that I love that they used for these new Scream movies is, again, I, they're not afraid to play into those tropes, but it works for them. So they have these new characters that, yes, they're, they're an entirely new cast outside of, you know, Dewey and Sydney and Gail coming back, but they all have connections to some character. You know, Sam is Billy Loomis's daughter and the twins are Randy from the first two films, they're his uh, nieces and nephew. 
So there is that familiar tie and they don't try to like hide that even with the way that the characters personalities are like his niece is randy completely she loves horror movies she's the one that's kind of breaking down how they're gonna work like he used to like that that was his thing where he'd be like well you know in the sequel you know anything goes or you know you could be the killer it's always the love interest like little moments like that they gave to his niece and i'm like this feels authentic they even brought Billy back in Scream 5 and Scream 6 because Sam was kind of having, like, she was, she has bad mental health and she started to kind of, like, a um, hallucinate him. Whenever she felt like she was going down a dark path, he would kind of pop up and encourage it. So are there are ways where this feels like the best Scream cast since the original, and I think that's why, because there are still those ties and those moments that connect you to the original even in scream six you know they have this moment where sam goes to swing at gail because she she you know wrote a book when she said she wasn't going to write a book and she got pissed and went to go swing she misses and gail laughs and goes i've been here before and then tara comes behind her and actually connects and, and punches her in the face so there are those little moments where scream six really tries to connect to all of the past films, specifically Scream 2. And it reminded me of a moment that someone reposted on Twitter with Scream 2 where, you know, Sydney confronts Gail, like you wrote this book and you said you weren't going to do it and how could you do that? We, you, you were in this traumatic situation with me, like you know. And she punches Gail in the face, one of the many times that she does so. She punches Gail in the face and her best friend goes, ha, did you get that on film? And, the, and her film crew was like, yes, I got that on film. It was like this funny little stupid moment. And the moment that that scene happened in Scream 6, I knew from then, okay, this is like, this is exactly a love letter to this the second Scream film. But it also, it didn't follow everything verbatim. It, it felt like its own film. But the reason Scream 6 worked is because it, it knew it knew what to do. And it wasn't like a cheap imitation. And so I, the best way to describe it is a love letter. Another reason I loved this film so much was that these ghost faces were brutal. They were ruthless. It wasn't just, you know, the typical stabbing. There's a moment where the ghost face gets their hand on a gun and starts shooting. So you knew that not only are we in a completely new setting in New York City, the same rules that applied in Woodsboro and in the past, these ghost faces aren't fucking around. They don't care. And I think when watching the Scream movies, we know Cindy's never going to die. We thought Dewey was never going to die. R.I.P. Dewey. He does, you know, bite it in this, the fifth one. You know, Gale doesn't die. And the stakes were so much higher in this film that nobody was safe. There were so many close calls Mindy gets stabbed up, you think she's gonna die. Then Chad gets stabbed up real bad, you think he's gonna die. And then Gail almost gets it too, and, and there's a moment where her pulse stops, and you think, oh my fucking God. First it was Dewey in the fifth film, are they gonna kill off Gail too? And it's just, obviously, I think any Scream fan knows that anybody is possible, it's, it's possible anybody can die, but there are certain characters you allow yourself to get attached to because you know that they absolutely won't. Sydney is the final girl, and Gail is too, so you know they're not gonna die. But Scream 6 tosses everything up and makes you so uncomfortable because you're like, oh my god, there is a possibility that she could die. 
and I'm thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do? Like, is there going to be some, you know, other character that they're going to have kind of take her place, you know, as the annoying reporter? Or is she going to survive? And I was hoping, I'm like, Gail gets on my nerves, but she's got to live. She's got to live. And I, it also made me think of, you know, we live in a different time. Audiences are, and fans are more intense. They get really attached to these characters. And this is the longest a core group of friends in these, in these films have survived. The core four is still intact. People around them died, but Mindy, Chad, Tara, and Sam are still standing. And now we're in Scream 6. And I have to think, you know, the audience is attached to these characters. Are they afraid to make a move and kill them? Because I'm not going to lie. I wasn't overly surprised when Randy died in Scream. But I was hoping he was going to stick around kind of like Dewey and Gail did. Because, you know, I, I felt like he was becoming a staple. So I'm like, they know they really can't kill Gail. So... But I was happy that they thought they made us think it for a second because it showed nobody's invincible. And I have a plan. I have a plan, an idea an, uh, for the end of this chapter of Scream. As much as I love Sydney, and, and can I just say that this film loses a few points because Neve Campbell isn't in it. She is like the face of Scream. There was it was still a good film, don't get me wrong, one of the best in a while. But there was a noticeable void that she wasn't there. And, and they make mention of the fact, you know, you know, Sydney's not coming this time. She's got kids. She's got a husband. And they're in hiding, you know. And what I said in my review for Scream 5 on Letterboxd was, you know, it sucks that, you know, that they did need dirty and they weren't going to pay her what she was worth. But it also gives her character some, like, deserved peace. You know, she's been dealing with this for over 20 years and she deserves peace she deserves a break she's got children and a family of her own she deserves to for once not have Ghostface after her and this chapter of scream allows a new focus because the first you know four screams or technically the first five screams they all tied back to that first night you know, the second scream was Billy Loomis's mother getting revenge for the death of her son and just some crazed fanatic that wanted fame. Scream three was Sydney's brother who felt like their mother abandoned him. Scream four was her cousin, you know, jealous of her life, wanted that fame and attention and was going to kill her to get it. And then scream five kind of shifts and it becomes, we know that Sam is Billy Loomis's daughter. How do we get close to her to get that fame? Because we're such crazy fans of the Stab movies. We want a piece of that. We want to create our own movie. And from Scream 5, it's that turning point of it's now less about Sydney and it's now getting revenge for what happened to Richie and Amber and being obsessed with a new tragedy and kind of like, okay, Sydney gets a break, you know, but it always needs to come back to Sydney, in my opinion, because she is the OG. She's the original, like they mentioned in the films themselves. But it is a nice, like, it is a nice change because it allows for new energy. It allows, it allows for new storylines. And these films are going to always work as long as they always tie in some something from the original. That's why Scream 6 worked so well. And so my idea is that once they get to Scream 10, because they're going to get to Scream 10. They might as well. I'll keep watching Scream movies. I don't give a fuck. I do think they should kill Sydney off. 
it would be such they should either kill sydney off or make her a ghost face that would be a and i know that's not original i'm sure there's a lot of people who think that but i can only see it ending in one of two ways this particular chapter giving us a big punch to the gut would be making her ghost face or killing her off so i do hope that you know they work it out with uh neve campbell they pay her what she's worth she comes back and they really like go there because how satisfying would it be for a woman who's been tortured and stalked her whole life now she gets to to get revenge so yeah that that's kind of what i hope that they do in the future that's just my idea the last couple of things that i wanted to mention before i wrap up my thoughts here is that i think that sam really stepped up in scream six i think scream five even though neve campbell was only really in it for a little bit her and Gail and Tara really overshadowed her. I left Scream 5 thinking, okay, this was really supposed to be about Sam Carpenter and the fact that she is Billy Loomis's daughter, but her sister Tara is overshadowing her and the OGs are overshadowing her. And I, and I saw the potential in the vision and I saw where they were trying to go with Scream 5, but it only fell a little flat because she got overshadowed. But in Scream 6, she really stepped up into that role and became a more interesting character she became in scream six but i felt like she should have been in scream five but i do think jenna ortega is the new it girl right now for horror and i think in a couple of years she may reach that status of neve campbell and um jamie lee curtis as like the final girls and i think that's also why scream six worked so well and why some people were like okay neve campbell is still the face of scream 100 percent, but these are really good final girls and Jenna Ortega still shined in this one, don't get me wrong. But I do think that Sam Carpenter, they did better with her character this time. She stepped it up. She became just as interesting. So if they are like the new faces of Scream for now, I'm cool with that. I think they're both great. I also love how they switched things up with Ghostface, not only with how brutal they were, but like the film starts off with two different sets of Ghostfaces that were going to go after Sam and Tara who end up getting killed by the final ghost face reveals. I thought that was interesting because you're so used to, you know, the film starting off with someone dying and being killed, but you don't know who the ghost face is. This one, they kill her and immediately he takes off the mask. He changes his clothes. He heads to the college dorms. You know who he is. And so I thought that was interesting. I was like, hmm, one pair of ghost faces just killed another pair. So I, I, I like that too. Like that hooked me in right from the beginning because I'm like, oh, we've never started off this way and Scream. So again, I really do think that Scream 6 gave and breathed new life into the Scream franchise and I really can't wait to see what they do for Scream 7, but I do hope that Neve Campbell comes back eventually. My rating for this movie is a 5 out of 5. So the last movie on my list is Creed 3 and I gotta say, for this one, I definitely think that this is the best film in the series too. I think it had a great story. It delves deeply into Adonis's past. We knew he had like a dark and unhappy childhood, but this film really dives deeper into the details because you realize while he's made progress in some ways, he still there he still had a lot of work um that he needed to do to make himself a better man, a better husband, a better father. And it seems like he always comes to this conclusion in the movie when someone either dies or comes close to, you know, in the second Creed film, Rocky gets really sick 
And in this one, unfortunately, his mother dies. And that scene, oh, I cried in the theater, actually. Like, I really did cry because it was such, and I felt this way about Angela Bassett's performance in Black Panther 2 and, you know, everything I've been through over the past couple of years. It was a, it, it really captured grief, you know, because often when someone close to us dies like that, it's real life. You, you realize that life is short and you realize, sometimes you realize this little piece of me that I didn't realize was broken or needs to be healed is so glaringly obvious now. And now that this person is gone, not only do I have to deal with their grief, I also have to deal with the other things that I've maybe been running from or things in my past that I didn't get closure. You know, because death, you have to make closure with that. And so I feel like it allows you to make closure in other areas of your life. And I feel like that this film really captured that well because he got a lot of closure, you know. Jonathan Majors played his best friend at the time. They, you know, after sneaking out to go see one of his fights, they're at a corner store and they bump into their old their old foster father that was beating them. And, you know, Adonis loses it, beats him up. Um, Jonathan Majors' character, and I'm slipping on his name right now, and that's so bad. He comes in to help him, pulls out a gun. Adonis makes a run for it, escapes. And, you know, Jonathan Majors' character ends up, um, Dame. Dame ends up, you know, going to prison for 18 years. And the mother, of course, your mom always knows who's a bad influence. And she kind of hid Dame's letters from him. He never went to go visit Dame in prison. And so Dame felt abandoned and had all this rage built up for years. And he gets out of prison and kind of like forces Adonis to get his foot in the door to become a pro boxer because he spent 18 of years of his prime really in jail. And so this story is about both of them really making peace with the past and letting go of rage. And, you know, once you get to the final fight scene, Adonis pretty much realizes that I've been, I can't win this fight by fighting off of pure rage and anger and bitterness and guilt. And once he's able to shake that, he wins the fight. Of course, Jonathan Major's character, Dame, he's, he's a brutal fighter, so... I, I, that was one of my favorite parts of the film, the choreography in that final fight scene. It was it was so good. It kept, kept you engaged. It made you feel like you're actually watching a boxing match. The only thing I didn't like about that scene was the cheesy, no offense to Michael B. Jordan because I know he directed this one, some of the cheesy directing choices where there's moments where it's just them. It's They're focused on each other. It's like the audience isn't there. And there's a scene where the boxing ring is wrapped around in like a cage, like a jail cell. And I don't know, I just didn't like the way it looked. I thought it was kind of cheesy. But yeah, I think that this Creed 3 wrapped up the first chapter of Creed of him. You know, he's not perfect. Nobody's ever perfectly healed, like I said in the beginning of this episode. But it showed major progress in his character. And I also loved how his past connects to his daughter's present life. You know, you notice that his daughter has his own issue, has her own issues with fighting. She wants to solve every issue by fighting. And Tessa Thompson's character is telling, you know, Adonis, like, this is how you've fixed issues your whole life, and now you're teaching it to our daughter because she doesn't want her daughter to fight. She does like, and there are certain matches that they're in the audience. She turns her daughter's head away. She doesn't want her to see that violence, but her daughter is so enraptured and enamored 
by Adonis and by boxing and and I can definitely tell because you know Michael B. Jordan says that he can he wants to continue making Creed movies I wouldn't be surprised you know that his character will officially fully retire and start training his daughter and she, she'll kind of take off from there because there are how many Rocky movies are there there are a lot so there'll probably be a lot of Creed movies and I feel like that's kind of like the beginning maybe not for like Creed 4 unless they do a time jump that's cool but I do think eventually we'll see him really start training his daughter because he's kind of already starting. So I do like that they connected his past to her present because it just shows that when you don't break a cycle, you you risk the potential of passing it on to your child. And then now it's their job to try to break that cycle and heal. So I do like that you know Tessa Thompson's character forced Michael B. Jordan's character to kind of to address it and fix it before it really fully affects their daughter. Um, so that was also a cute moment, seeing them bond over fighting. And, and you know, I that thought just popped into my head. I was like, that would make for a good future Creed movie, having, you know, aging the daughter up eventually and having him train her. And who knows, that can spin off into something else too, because Creed is a spinoff of Rocky. So yeah, those are my thoughts. All in all, a really good movie. I think this is the first time in a long time where a lot of great movies are coming out kind of back to back or within the same weekend. I really enjoyed Creed. The rating, five out of five, just like Scream 6. Both really good. Um, I am going to try to see John Wick 4, technically this weekend, and I'll be right back on this podcast giving you my review of that. Now, I know I said I was going to give you my thoughts on everything everywhere, but this episode is getting kind of long. I only have a certain amount of time to record, so maybe I'll just keep it quick and brief. So everything everywhere all at once is like the definition of camp <laughs> or when someone goes, oh, this is like this show is kind of like on crack where it's like super, super wacky and nonsensical. That's what Everything Everywhere All at Once is. It's a film that doesn't take itself too seriously at all, which I think is one of the best parts about it. There are certain scenes where I'm like, this is really, really fucking weird. I feel like I either have to be high or super drunk to really like enjoy it. It was just, some of the choices were odd. But despite all of its wackiness, I think what really sells the movie is that, yes, it's filled with all of these like nonsensical and kind of supernatural moments, but it allows the more emotional parts of the movie to like pack a deeper punch. And it's really about this woman who is unsatisfied with her life and, you know, wishing she had made different choices. She could have followed her passions instead of just kind of meeting this man, falling in love with him and blindly following him to America and getting married and having kids and, you know, co-owning a, a laundromat that she really has no passion for. And in this movie... It's kind of like their take on the multiverse where it's all these different versions of her and these different versions of her do the things that she always wanted to do. One of them is a famous actress and singer and one studied Kung Fu, I think it was. And, you know, one falls in love with her next door neighbor. And it's all these different versions of her that are living a life that she wished that she maybe lived. And so all, even though all of those parts are wacky and crazy and just sometimes straight up weird, it allows those moments where she's back to her actual real life in dealing with these things that you realize this movie has a, a deeper meaning. Like she wants a better relationship with her daughter because, you know, she's not really fully accepting the fact that she's gay and, you know, her she's doing to her daughter what her father did to her all her life and, you know, her and her husband are on the verge of divorce, so... There are more, you know, emotionally 
um there are more emotional parts of this movie there are more depth than the more like wacky weird scenes and also it's just it's a fun watch too it doesn't take itself too seriously so it forces you not to so you just have fun and sometimes movies just deserve to be fun and that's it the editing and sound were all done very well too i liked some of those choices and i think that michelle is it yo michelle yo she's the lead actress she won best actress at the oscars which as much as I didn't fuck with Jamie Lee Curtis's win, I felt like Michelle's was deserving. Out of all of the choices, I think she probably gave a more emotionally impactful performance. And she was just good. She was funny, she had good comedic timing, and she really delivered the more deeper parts of the role. So I definitely think that she was deserving. And, you know, I may not love this film as much as everyone else seems to, but I can definitely see why people enjoyed the film, because there were definitely parts of it that I did enjoy. So I give this movie a three out of five. So we are coming towards the end of the episode, but before I end the episode, I wanted to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Woman by Doja Cat. I was listening to my Spotify on shuffle, I think yesterday, and the song came on and I was like, I forgot how much I love this song. It's from her album, Planet Her. And because it's International Women's Month and I'm dedicating each song of the week to a woman, I was like, what better song than Woman by Doja Cat? So that is the song of the week. So we have come towards the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. I truly, truly appreciate it. If you like this episode and you want to keep up with this podcast further, then please head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I even have a YouTube page. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please consider giving Listen To Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your podcasts. And while you're at it, consider giving your girl a donation as well to my listeners' donations. It can be found on my website, www.listentomespeak.com, or it can be found on my Anchor page. I appreciate any level of support. I truly do. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves. Thanks for listening to me speak.